This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. When you consider that the Orang Asli community, and by Orang Asli I mean the indigenous community... Now, is it Orang Asal or Orang Asli? Can you clarify for right. us? Right. So I think there is a lot of confusion in this regard. So you have the Orang Asli community of Peninsular Malaysia and the pre-Bumi communities of Sabah and Sarawak. Okay. Now, collectively, they're known as Orang Asal. Oh. So Orang Asal is an umbrella term to refer to the non-Malay indigenous communities of Malaysia. I see, I see. Okay, but you, for your research, use Orang Asli. I have worked specifically with the Orang Asli community in Peninsular Malaysia. So, yeah. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fuad Rahma, and this is Night School, the show that explores concepts, theories, and society. Joining us this week is a research fellow from the uh, Institute of Ethnic Studies at UKM in Bangi, Dr. Govindran Jagatesan. Hi, Fuad, how are Welcome you? Welcome to the show. And you're going to talk to us about Orang Asal in the contemporary context, pretty much, right? Which is based on your doctoral dissertation. Yes. Well, I think we start getting to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this area, because I know you started off in literature. That is right, yes. So I started off my bachelor's in English literature, and this was almost 15 years ago. And then, I, I well, after my degree, I, I actually took a break off academia and went on to become a flight attendant. And then uh, I quit that, and I fell back into academia. I did my master's in science and environmental journalism. And, um, and during the course of my master's, I just, well, uh, had to produce a thesis and my research was on joint conservation of national parks with indigenous communities Mm -hmm. and I just sort of fell into anthropology really which is what my PhD well really the field of my PhD is in it's in classical anthropology because you're working with indigenous communities so I just sort of you could say fell into it right right what is the added dimension that anthropology offers that say environmental science or planning doesn't I mean there's a human element there but what else drew you to that field you're correct to say that there is a human element there. And I think with ethnographic work, which is the kind of work I do and a lot of anthropologists do, I think there is a, a keen impetus to try to understand why it is that a community does what, what it is they do, to understand where they're coming from, bearing in mind that we are outsiders when mm-hmm. we work with a community. But you try to do your best to understand their worldview in the hope that it contributes to broader understanding you know, of the community you work or the topic that you're working on. You know, it's really just about understanding and disseminating this understanding to the community you're working with in the hopes of assisting them or helping them or forwarding a course, which is what a lot of anthropologists do when they work with NGOs or mm-hmm. in advocacy, or just to broaden understanding on a, on a particular topic. Yeah. One of the interesting things I do like about anthropology is that you can really expand what understanding means, right? Because typically we approach an issue with our prejudices and biases, and we tend to think of them as harmless. But then given the kind of what you do, you can tell that a lot of those presuppositions sometimes inform policies, inform the way we talk about certain people or the way we treat them. So I think one of the interesting things that ethnography offers is that that ability to challenge your prejudices, right? To kind of be caught surprised by the kind of blind spots you have when thinking about an issue. Exactly, it does. And it's very well put, actually, Afwan. I think you come in, you know, and you do come in sometimes with an idea an understanding of, of the status quo or the community that you are engaging. And I think you've got to actively take a third party point of view, take a step back 
from the person that you are and the and the mind that you are to try to look at a situation if you want to understand a community or a group of people and it's as they say true objectivity is elusive it's like mm-hmm. a unicorn and it's not true objectivity that you're pursuing but rather the ability to entertain different points of views that may sometimes be at loggerheads with your own point of view mm-hmm. but that's the whole point of trying to go out of your comfort zone to understand and learn about a community yeah yeah i also find field work very interesting because i don't do any field work i just do texts largely films books mm-hmm. magazines or historical archives right but to be on site to be on the ground talking to strangers winning their trust and then you know having the stomach or wherewithal to adjust to new and unfamiliar surroundings i mean tell us a little bit about that experience in terms of the research you've produced right because not everybody's meant for field work right cuz so sometimes i get my students come up to me and they say oh you know i want to do i want to do a field work about the slums in xyz or something like that you know and i want to be you know in the context with the people and stuff like that and i think i think to myself and i always remind them too is like well you know you need a lot of endurance you need a lot of like adaptability right you have to be likable and sometimes you have to know like when to assert when so tell us a little bit about that experience because i don't think people quite get the challenges of actual field work especially prolonged in order to produce new knowledge right i think um when you work with a community that is largely urban and to well i use the term loosely part of mainstream malaysia the divide may not be as broad as it would be when you for instance work with a community from the interior mm-hmm. say an indigenous community in tasibra or somewhere up far north in interior kedah and then the distance there is wider you've really got to earn the trust of the community and i think sometimes there is this you know romanticization of ethnographic work you want to go out there and and, and be indiana jones yes exactly <laughs> get your safari hat on you know and your khaki shorts and uh, and the reality of it is very different because there are two things at work here one is the work you do with the community and you have to earn their trust for it but secondly is and more importantly perhaps is the work you do with yourself hmm. that you've got to I mean we are a product of our society and of our education and largely education in anthropology it's a field that was spearheaded by the west particularly the british mm-hmm. and so so many of the theories that you're exposed to when you do anthropology 101 are western constructs how a white person works with an indigenous community with a community of color mm-hmm. and you've got to strip that you know you've got to decolonize the way you, right, you approach right. research before you work with an indigenous community for instance yeah. it's very different working with a community and say say you know urban youth in Kuala Lumpur yes yeah. you know it's it's easier i mean in that sense you know trust is not that's true yeah harder to negotiate yeah yeah and a lot of the landscape is still familiar yes right and this is again where i quote unquote envy maybe anthropologists for having that opportunity right because for me if i'm decolonizing a text it's pretty much just words on a page or images but mm-hmm. when you're decolonizing yourself mm. in the kind of mire of all these confusions right and lives so to speak you know in the interaction and confusion i think it, it can be a very rich experience i imagine it is a journey yeah. it certainly is a journey and i think sometimes you pause and you take a good hard look at yourself and you ask yourself what it is you're trying to achieve here yeah. with the research you're doing yeah. because you must be accountable for what it is you write yeah. and produce you're perpetuating knowledge and you don't want to perpetuate the wrong kind of knowledge sure. and there is such a thing right right i want to get into the particulars of research soon but firstly 
Can you tell us a little bit about how cultural anthropology or anthropology more broadly has, you know, matured since its, you know, colonial days, right? Because like you said, it began as a colonial enterprise, right? So sociology right. would be studying the urban West and anthropology would be studying, you know, it wasn't even called the global South then, it was called just savages or something, right? Or like primitive societies or something, right? So, but you have Talal Assad today, you know, for example, mm-hmm. who's, who's really challenged that framework. Before that, maybe Clifford Gertz. I mean, he's still mm-hmm. white, but I mean, he really did try to push the boundaries of knowledge, right? So how far has anthropology advance in terms of its self-reflexivity. Right. And now I'm not on a mission here to demonize people of European descent. That's, sure, sure. That's really sure. not what I'm trying to do. I am though, but that's fine. <laughs> but anyway, so, all I'm saying is, um, you know, it started out as a Western colonial enterprise, you know, especially, I mean, I think hallmark classical anthropology is British anthropology back in the days. And it was an initiative set out to understand the colonized not for altruistic purposes or for the intrinsic beauty of the community, but because it assisted, it enabled them to understand, categorize, define the communities they worked with and learn about their strengths, their weaknesses, and how they could use this to further advance the cause of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to see how there'll be a vast difference in terms of perspective or the approach to anthropology today as opposed to how it was when it was you know, in the early days right. um, during British colonialism. And so I think today you see a strong movement with a number of academics of color, you know, also European, who don't want to subscribe to value systems associated with classical anthropology. You know, um, they prioritize narratives of the communities they work with. You know, it's no longer, of course, my voice as an anthropologist will always be evident in the work that I do. Mm-hmm because I'm still a person and I'm working with a community. And to deny that my voice exists is really naive, I think. Yeah. So, um, yes, your voice is there. But what you want to do is to prioritize the narrative of the people you are working with, you know, that they are the subject right. of, of the narrative, of the discourse. Right. And I think this is the transitioning. This is the journey you have to make, that you prioritize the needs and the narrative of the people you work with, hoping that this would provide a more equitable conversation on the matter. And it's interesting that your research aims just for that, right? I mean, because you talk about one of the things that you bring up, at least, is the tendency to victimize the Orang Asal community, right, in Malaysia, where they are treated like objects insofar as they're presumed not to have agency, or they're often at the receiving end of things, but not necessarily engineers of their own narratives or uh, lives, right? So tell us a little bit about how that spirit of, you know, engaging your subjects Mm-hmm. In, in ways that would empower them, how that, that's informed your own work? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when I started with my PhD research, halfway through it, I decided to change the topic that I was working on. And this is because I found that a, a substantial body of the scholarship on the Orang Asli really focused on their experiences in the rural parts of Peninsular Malaysia. And this is a tradition that originated with the British colonialists, you know, in pre-independent Malaysia, uh, Malaya, and has carried on to the present day. There is very little, if no, ethnographic work done with Orang Asli individuals in the urban area. And I think, look, it's, it's understandable because largely many of the communities are located in the rural areas. 
and you find that a lot of the issues that result in situation of being disadvantaged has to do with land loss. And a lot of the lands are in the rural areas as well. And, and a lot of the complexities facing them are facing them at the level of the settlements. However, I think there's been a substantial amount of movement from the rural areas to the urban areas. And I think this has received much less ethnographic right. attention. You find that there are instances of Orang Asli resilience and adaptability that showcase you know, ways in which Orang Asli contest conventional framings of who they are as a minority group. Right. So just as a general or generalization, like what accounted for that movement? Because like you said, much of what we assume places the Orang Asal community outside the urban areas, right? Mm -hmm. But you said mm -hmm. that there were migrations. So why did that happen? Well, primarily, you see, most of this movement, the rural urban migration, has taken place as a result of economic need. You know, many Orang Asli communities that have lost their lands now find that they have to find other ways to meet economic needs. And the urban area, especially the Klang Valley, which is the focus of my research, is Malaysia's most developed, most urbanized area. And of course, the area that offers the most opportunities in terms of employment. And so you find a lot of them moving to the urban areas in search of employment. But this movement has also resulted, I think, in in interesting connections, in interesting ways in which Orang Asli communities continue to maintain their relationship, you know, as as now participants in an urban space and their settlements in the rural area, mm -hmm. which was a lot of what my research had to do with. Right, right. Interesting. So I want to get into more detail about that mixture of contexts, right, Orang Asal in the urban areas in Kelang Valley. But we'll take a break now for some messages from our sponsors. I'll be right back after this. I am Ahmad Fat Rahmat with Dr. Govindran Jagatesan of Kita at UKM Bangi. And this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, listening to me, Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Joining us this week is Dr. Govindran Jagatesan from UKM. He is currently a research fellow at the Institute of Ethnic Studies there. And we are talking about the uh, contemporary context of the Orang Asal community, particularly focusing on his research of Orang Asal settlements in the urban area in Klang Valley, more specifically. And the first part of the show, you talked about the general context of your research within a very interesting history of how anthropology has dealt with center-periphery discussions. And let's go more into your research for the second part of the show. So which communities did you work with? Because what you're suggesting is that Klang Valley actually has more Orang Asal communities than we normally think. Right. Yes. Well, uh, when you consider that the Orang Asli community, and by Orang Asli, I mean the indigenous communities. Have no, is it Orang Asal or Orang Asli? Can you clarify for right. us? Right. So I think there is a lot of confusion in this regard. So you have the Orang Asli community of Peninsular Malaysia and the pre-Bumi communities of Sabah and Sarawak. Okay. Now, collectively, they're known as Orang Asal. Oh. So Orang Asal is an umbrella term to refer to the non-Malay indigenous communities of Malaysia. I see, I see. Okay, but you, for your research, use Orang Asli. I have worked specifically with the Orang Asli community in Peninsular Malaysia. So, yeah. Okay, Peninsular interesting. Inter okay, sorry to interrupt. Go on, please. Right, yeah. yes. So as I was, I was, as I was talking about earlier... Um, the research that I did, I wanted to depart from conventional narratives of, of indigenous victimization. You know, the popular framings of the Orang Asli see them as a disadvantaged community and, you know, a community that is mired in poverty, you know, lack of access to healthcare. And these are all very real concerns facing the Orang Asli. But I think the problem with decades-long representation of the Orang Asli this way is it resulted in some form of um, static representation of the community, you know. They're viewed, as I said, you know, as a disadvantaged communities and there's not much space given to instances that 
you know, prioritize or bring to the fore uh, examples of their resilience or mm-hmm. adaptability. You know, yeah. they are inventive, they are creative, they are, yes, they are like any other community in Malaysia, I would say. Yeah. You know? There's another narrative too that I keep hearing and that is that, uh, the claim that they're actually indifferent to development. You know, mm. they really can't care mm. less either mm. way, mm. right? As long as they get their basic needs or something, um, which I find, you know, suspect as well, but mm. I keep hearing. I mean, do you engage with that narrative as well? I think that is a huge misconception. Mm-hmm. I think it's a huge misconception. You hear it not just with individuals who may not have worked with Orang Asli, but even individuals with Jakwa, for mm. instance, in the Department of Orang Asli Affairs, uh, who have worked with Orang Asli, and you hear narratives of how they are more at home being away from development. You know, They're not really interested in it. And I think time and again, the Orang Asli communities have stressed that what they want is an equitable pattern of development that benefits their community, you know, not a top-down approach, which is what we have traditionally seen, you mm-hmm. know, in the governmental development plans for the Orang Asli. There's been negotiation, dialogue with Orang Asli communities as to the kind of development they would like in their communities is usually kept to a minimum, if at all. Right, right. And, and this is where the change has to happen. There has to be a dialogue, an equitable, you know, of equal standing. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you gather your information then, because if you're framing it in terms of agency, mm-hmm. in terms of resilience, I mean, did you do surveys? Did you do interviews? How did you get a picture of what you were looking for? So um, it was, uh, yes, I would say in-depth interviews, largely. And as I say, working with indigenous communities, there has to be a trust developed. Mm-hmm. And because unlike my master's research, when I actually worked with a particular community, uh, which was the Kensu community of Baling, with my PhD research, I worked with Orang Asli individuals in the Klang Valley. So they came from very many different communities. And I think, you know, it wasn't the trust building initiative that I encountered when I was working on my master's where I lived with a community. Right, so I'm right. meeting individuals from different communities, different experiences, in different parts of the peninsula. It was trickier. So what was behind that choice? Are the uh, Orang Asli communities here more dispersed? Are they less cohesive as they would be in, say, a quote-unquote a rural area or the hinterland? I mean, why, why did you choose not to focus on one concentrated space rather than focusing on individuals? Well, instead? because I wanted to um, look at the experiences of the Orang Asli in the urban space. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what better space than the Klang Valley? Yeah. You know, um, but I didn't know, like, so I guess what I'm asking is, like, did you focus on a village, a particular village in the Klang Valley? Or? No, no, I didn't. And there are communities in Damansara Padana, right, for instance, right, look at Lanjan. Yeah, very well known. But I wanted to look at rural urban migrants, mm, you see. So I, I wanted see, to look at I individuals see. had moved into the Klang Valley. And they didn't move en masse. They moved largely as individuals. Yes, yes, like, yes, uh, yes. Over many years. And they come and go. Some of them have moved permanently to the Klang Valley. And some of them still, you know, um, go back and forth, you know, to yeah. their... Yeah. Yeah. Assimilation is always associated with migration, right? Because at some point when you go somewhere else, you have to kind of just be like, quote unquote, them or something. I mean, how is identity negotiated in that process, right? What's compromised? Right. And that's a great question, Afwar. I think what you're talking about there, at least in my research, I refer to as cultural code switching. Mm -hmm. You know, we do code switch, for instance, when we speak languages, you know. You wouldn't go to the supermarket and order, you know, when you you want to buy fish from a match at the supermarket, you're going to really just Pasakan your basam layu, for instance, yep. you know, and and it's it's very different when you speak to a government staff. So I think in the same way, there's cultural code switching among the Orang Asli, and the Orang Asli individuals have spoken to. 
they're fairly open about it. They say, yes, well, this is what we do. You know, we adopt a persona when we are in the urban space. And, you know, a lot of them that I interviewed worked with the government in Putrajaya, for mm -hmm. instance. And, of course, they had to adopt a certain persona there. And the moment they go back to their kampung, it's, you know, they, they shut off this persona and, yeah. you know, go on and start tapping rubber, for instance. Now, is that persona more Malay? Would you say something along those lines since they would pass most immediately as Malays, you know, one would think. Right. I think in Putrajaya, there may be some, I mean, a fair bit of truth to that. I think there is a slightly more pressure to adopt a, a more Malay persona. It's interesting because when you go to the, with the community I worked with during my master's, and this was in Kampung Lubut Legong, you find that the Kensu people there, for instance, a number of them have converted to Islam on paper. Hmm. They don't don on a headscarf. But the moment you have Jakwa officials coming into the kampung, they don on the headscarf, you know, because they want to project this idea of assimilation. Right. I think it, it's adaptive, it's resilient, and I think it's brilliant in the sense that it shows us that they have agency, that right. they know how to negotiate their circumstance to orchestrate, you know, what it is they want. Now, what sort of bargaining chips do you get from that? Right. Well, um, I think, uh, I think, well, the thing is, it's, you know, this is, um, it's an interesting conversation to have. I think <laughs> this is an interesting conversation to have because yeah. it's, um, you know, it's come in a... Because very... what I wonder is, you know, just at face value, it seems that you would be more constrained, right? Because it's such a surveilled identity, mm -hmm. being Muslim. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm just wondering, there might, have, there might be gains there that we're, I'm not getting, but one would think that it's quite a risk. I think um, when I say that they are... Uh, they see an opportunity and they know how to craft, you know, the way they behave toward accessing that opportunity. Mm. I think, for instance, financial remuneration, right, you know, right. um, for instance, or infrastructure. You know, I think they do understand that there are certain superficial, I would say, value systems that they have to adopt in order to, to access, you know, certain benefits. And I, again, I think this is uh, something... We all do, you know. We know yeah, how yeah. to we know how to uh, adapt and adopt different personas, different ways of speaking, with different individuals, depending on what it is we wish to access or obtain from yeah. them. You know. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting too that this is a strategy against the state, right? It's not just a cost benefit calculative way of thinking, right? It's, and I'm not speaking of their case in particular, but just in general when you know that the state can leverage so many things against you, you're going to find ways to kind of maneuver around that, right? And sometimes it requires adopting a certain rhetoric or an identity that the state requires so that they'll get off your back for the time you need them to, right? So and I, sort of that's how it works, it seems. Yes, and I think this is true of almost all Malaysians. Yeah. With the exception of Malaysians who have political immunity, I think, um, you know, when we got in the street, a lot of what we, I think a lot of what we're saying, we might say today is very different from what we would probably have, have said yesterday out yeah. in public, you yeah. know, for instance. And I think, um, yes, I think this is a strategy um, almost all Malaysians have adopted, really. Yeah. Given our political climate. That's true. That's previous true. political climate. Yeah. So what other measures have you noticed like, other than conversion? Um, with, with the Orangasi communities, you mean? Yeah. Now, I think, well, there's a lot of work done in this regard, I think, in the literature. I think a lot of the work published by NGOs here and, you know, um, anthropologists in Malaysia over the last few decades tell us that the Orang Asli find it, it is to the advantage of the Orang Asli sometimes to adopt a persona that is closer, that has more affinity to the Malay mm -hmm. majority to access certain benefits. And also just, uh, I think, 
well, there's also been you know some work done where Sonorangasi communities have actually adopted Christianity mm-hmm. just to because once they have adopted Christianity. Islamic proselytization no longer applies to them yeah. because they now have a religion, so to speak. Right, right. Because animism wasn't, by and large, wasn't really regarded as by the administration as a religion. Right, right. You know, and so they once they uh, converted to Christianity, there was no longer this pressure to convert to Islam or, or yeah. to have to deal with. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to note the notion of identity that's at work here because I think coming from a liberal middle class sort of property-owning, property-prizing attitude, Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to have more fortified boundaries of self and other, you know, in ways maybe that pre-modern communities are less preoccupied with that, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas for some, some might feel that, you know, uh, and this is what identity politics taps into, right? Don't compromise your identity, hold on to it like your dear life and everything else that makes demands in you is a kind of infringement. But there are communities that show that, you know, sometimes, you know, there's nothing wrong with hybridity, mm-hmm. right? So so on one hand, I see your point to say that these are strategies of resistance, but it's also the fact that it reflects certain kind of worldliness too, right? Oh, interesting worldview. I guess I'll sign up to that. No big deal, right? Because <laughs> I don't feel such a need to kind of hold on or close off myself, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, when you think about how cultures interact and blend mm. Mm. back in the day, just from migration or trade or just interaction, people adopt different elements of different cultures, largely because identity was not seen as a threat uh, as compared to today with a liberal framework where everything has to be like cordoned off, right? Mm-hmm. So that could be at work as well. I'm just thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, yes, I think uh, sometimes um, there are naive representations of the Orang Asli, you know? Um, and I think it's important to remember that they like any other community in Malaysia will identify an opportunity and will orchestrate, you know, um, ways in which they, they may access, you know, certain opportunities that are beneficial to them, that work in mm-hmm. their favor. And this is really true of, of any community, really, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what are some of the findings that you have that you feel is most significant for a general audience to know about the Orang Asal? I mean, the agency thing is very, very crucial. Mm-hmm. But given that there's so many misconceptions, Mm-hmm. about our relationship with them. I mean, what what else do you feel like is important? Well, when we look at the Orang Asli, at least the individuals I've worked with in the urban space, um, you know, um, they are participants in an urban space and they are resourceful. You know, they formulate new connections, new ways in which to negotiate their identity as now new indigenous participants in an urban space, but also to connect their experiences in the urban space with their communities in the rural space. You know, um, you find that when they identify opportunities in the urban space, you find a lot of them going back to their communities, at least in my interviews, telling the youth in their community, look, there are opportunities for work here. There are economic opportunities there. And I will connect you with them. Right. You know, right. And, and you find this, you know, sharing is a large feature of Orang Asli communities. Right. There is no, the concept of, of private ownership, you know, is largely, that was largely facilitated by, you know, uh, more mainstream understandings of property and land ownership. Right. But the Orangasi, they don't really, you don't own the land. No one individual owns the land. They share the land. Right. You know, they may own a fruit tree on the land, but they don't own the land itself. Right. And you find that this mentality of sharing carries on with individuals who have migrated to the urban areas. Yeah. They come back to the settlements and they share economic opportunities. They you, identify you, you, and share them. You've mentioned opportunities a lot, but what exactly 
are those opportunities? Uh, give some examples because now I'm starting to wonder like what kind of jobs are accessible to them or what kind of educational requirements they allow themselves, you know, mm-hmm. in order f- to get those jobs. So what what do you mean by opportunities? Well, this then would um would depend on the individual's uh, level of education, mm-hmm. on their background. And largely when I when I use the the term opportunity here, I refer to individual from all the white collar um, mm-hmm. you know jobs so you know uh, in the in the hotel industry for instance mm-hmm. or hospitality and you know they identify vacancies etc you know opportunities that they could bring in someone from the village and they make these opportunities known they go back they inform they bring them along introduce them to their bosses and try to rope their cousins and their and their friends from back home you know into these opportunities it is a bit harder when you go to blue collar jobs for instance mm-hmm. because these largely require a certain degree of education but still even individuals in blue collar jobs in putrajaya go back to their communities and they encourage young people from the communities to continue studying for instance yeah. and this is a large issue with orangasli communities that there's a high dropout rate mm-hmm. due to a number of factors but they go back and they spend the time to keep encouraging them to not give up to continue you know with their education that there is you know possibility of a better life etc and so on you find this sense this this sense of community and it's really strong yeah i think yes uh given that they're assimilated to the modern economy what what do you notice about their sense of nationalism for example you know do they identify with the kind of mainstream malaysian patriotism or do they still feel that they are marginalized i mean what kind of narratives did you discover there in that regard right now i can't speak for indigenous communities in borneo you know i actually can't speak for indigenous communities uh, anywhere really but uh, all i can say is from my interviews with uh, the orangasli you know uh, there's a very large number of the individuals i've spoken to who are disenfranchised you know um i think uh they're disenfranchised not just with the government i think or, or development plans i think also with people who come to their communities and say they want mm-hmm. to work with them and better their lives because my research didn't really cover the topic of patriotism and that's an interesting question but i find that at this point i would say i can say that uh the concern here really is to first meet their socioeconomic needs you mm-hmm. know which are which are many you know and i think it's hard for someone to negotiate patriotism when you are trying to negotiate the next meal for your family yeah but how about a sense of belonging maybe patriotism is a heavy term but to feel that you're recognized to feel that your identity is part of you know the broader narrative of progress for example because you know you have the malay chinese indian thing and then there's yes. a dan lai lai and yes. i dan lai lai is a long list yes. right so yes. you pointed out a sense of disenfranchisement but is there like and I, again this is going to border on speculative but hope that things can get better hope that they can one day be a national badminton player or right. an entrepreneur right. that kind of thing you know oh i definitely think that hope is there right. i think there is frustration there because they are eclipsed i think the question of representation right you hear about the bumi putra communities in in saban sarawa but the orang tend to be eclipsed i think in right. the mainstream discourse and um i think that is definitely a source of frustration you you hear that narrative you know um that we have been here you know we are indigenous and yet we are eclipsed right right very very interesting yeah. yeah we have to wrap up soon though but before we go do you have any reading recommendations like papers or books that you feel or even websites or videos or whatever else you feel that our listeners can look up if they want to know more about the topic you're researching into with orangasli research i think Well there are I think some of the authors you could look into would be say Kirk Endicott, mm-hmm. Alberto Gomez, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's Lai Tak Po, and uh, she's with University Science Malaysia. Yes, let's see. Well, I have Africa, in mind Sandra Kormanikam's Sandra work. Kormanikam, yeah, Taming yes. the Wild. Just yeah. more historical stuff than the fieldwork kind of stuff you do, but great context as well for how the identities are formed under right, colonial yes. constraints. Yeah. And I do have my book coming out next oh, year. Oh, wonderful. So, um, you know, uh, I'll keep you posted on that. All right, wonderful. So, any idea on when that might be out, though? Uh, the book, uh, let's see, I think probably mid next year. All right, wonderful. Mid next year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. So thanks for coming to the show. If you want to know more about Dr. Govindran's work, you can Google him too, Govindran Jagatesan, and he is at UKM under the Ethnic Studies Institute. Uh, you can Google that as well. I mean, plenty of talent there uh, at the Institute and find out more about the stuff we've been talking about. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for having me. And we'd love to have you over again to talk more about your research. And uh, you can email the show as well, bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook too. Or download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. Once again, I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.